This is Mad Hat Economics recording from Cornell University. My name is Elaine. Today on our show, we have our co-host Yu Dong. Hi. Professor David Just. Hello. Um, PhD candidate Joy. Hi. And uh, adv- her advisor, uh, Professor Aya Liponen. Hello. Welcome, everyone. So this week, uh, you know, I was just listening to The Indicator, a short NPR podcast. The episode tells a story, very interesting, about a dark website that where people can buy and sell stolen passports for about $15. You can go online and buy people's privacy information, especially passwords from almost any kind of company that you can imagine. So today on our show, the story behind what these markets tell us about your data privacy. Yeah. Joya, do you have something to share with us? Yeah, I think so. The privacy market is an interesting one. And I thought maybe we can start with a his- two historical perspectives on mm-hmm. privacy from um, how to regulate it and whether or not we should regulate it. Um, so Professor Alan Weston, um, who was at Columbia University, wrote a book called Privacy and Freedom in the early 1960s. And he was really aware of or hyper aware of the surveillance that was going on at the time mm-hmm. and how data could be collected and it's infringing on people's rights to privacy uh, or supposed rights to privacy. Um, and he really urged his readers to think about how to think of the property rights of mm-hmm. privacy and personal information because he predicted that you know these companies or entities or governments that collect personal information are going to be prone to corrupt behavior if there is no regulation for the individual. Um, So his ideal was to sort of set up these property rights so that there's some sort of due process. So when people give away their information or when people ask for information, um, you have to go through this process that protects it. So you at least know that you're giving away this information and that they're collecting it and using it. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's the whole idea behind it is one of control. Like if you give people the rights to control their information, that's what privacy really is. And that's, that should be protected. So that, that's one perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Richard Posner in the early, early eighties, 1981 published a paper called The Economics of Privacy, and his argument was a little different. So from an economics perspective, privacy is really about concealing information, Mm -hmm. or at least that part of privacy is what's interesting for economists. Um, And the concealing of information is in many ways inefficient for markets. So the classic example is an employer should know as much information about a potential hire, Mm -hmm. um, and if the employer doesn't, there's going to be an inefficient hiring process in the Mm -hmm. labor market. And so his perspective, Posner's perspective, was that we should really not value privacy because at the end of the day, the more information is out there, the better the market will be. And he actually, his, his opinion was that if we did have sort of privacy protections for something like credit scores, mm-hmm. he believes that it was the people with bad credit scores that would benefit and the people with good credit scores would sort of be um, hurt um, hurt by that. So, wow. yeah. So those are two it's, perspectives. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, and yeah. it's, uh, there's sort of a, a standard economic model out there about, uh, if, uh, uh, somebody selling a product knows about how an individual values their product and actually ends up being welfare improving mm. and, and typically allows people on the lower end to buy the product that wouldn't have otherwise, right? Through, through, 
what they call price discrimination. It's something that, that sounds really scary, but it, it essentially means you can offer your product for a really low price to people who don't have much money and not worry about wealthy people taking advantage of it, right? Um, and, and so it allows for this increase in welfare. But it, it's, it's these two completely opposing views, though, where one says, hey, this is a great thing. Let's get rid of privacy. And the other is afraid of how people are going to use this for uh, for bad purposes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the purposes could be even kind of economically efficient, but still be objectionable to, pe to mm -hmm. individuals. So, for example, if you give away a lot of personal information and then it's used to um, prevent you from buying insurance, for example, mm. yeah. or prevent you from entering some healthcare services because you have some genetic issue that would be very, very expensive to deal with. And so those are the, the kind of boundaries and issues that we have not really clarified as a society. So we don't have mm -hmm. clear regulation about what personal data can be used for and what it cannot be used for. So that's a really a, an important ongoing and future debate about what do we want to do about personal data. And I think it also matters with uh, like what level do uh, people or consumer val like value their own data. For example, I heard about the pizza story that <laughs> Joy was ta telling me yeah. the yeah. other day. <laughs> like, people were willing to trade their uh, uh, friend's email address just for a size of pizza. So hey, I do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, like people don't value their, uh, like, for example, ad email address as a very important thing. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if it's genetic, uh, you know, if it's something about your uh, personal well-being, the health information, then people might like have a second thought, think, well, that might be more valuable that I don't want to disclose. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the how to value privacy is sort of a really important question in economics right now. So mm -hmm. the I think things are changing now, but are, it used to be that we think of privacy as maybe this uniform theory that can cover any context, like from the friend's email address to like your personal health data. Um, but these are obviously very different pieces of information. And maybe instead of, you know, thinking of privacy as from the, you know, concealing information perspective, but mm -hmm. valuing the information itself, um, and one big yeah. issue in the kinds of data that you just mentioned is the sort of the time frame in which they might be valuable. So your French mm -hmm. email, it's kind of a hassle to change your email address because you're getting a lot of spam in your email. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be done and it's not a, it ha doesn't have very, very long-term implications, but your health data might be valuable for 50 years from now mm -hmm. because some of the things that you do now mm -hmm can then have health implications um, very long time from now. And so one aspect of it, this all these decisions is that the data about you now, you don't know when it's going to, how long it's going to be valuable and how, mm -hmm. when the implications from knowing that data is, are going to sort of hit you or, or come back to you. And, and so the, the, there's so much uncertainty about when the data will be valuable and how valuable it will be that, that it's really difficult to kind of pin down yeah. the prices and, and uh, regulatory mechanisms for different kinds of data. Yeah. How, how disconnected is, uh, is privacy policy right now from the current technology? I mean, is, mm. are, I get the sense that we're pretty far behind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do we have a privacy policy? We do have. We do have a sort of, um, now I'm blanking on the name of this uh, electronic communications 
policy, but that, I think that dates from the 1980s. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. that was way before yeah. the internet and way before we started shopping and socializing and do, doing work online. We do almost all spheres of our lives um, have some online um, dimension or activity to them. So almost all aspects of our lives are now kind of mm -hmm. touching digital information a lot yeah. about us. And so the 1980s communication laws are just completely out of touch. And they did sort of respond to some of those, Joey mentioned in the beginning, um, some of those kind of um, intelligence and, and uh, snooping kinds yeah, of yeah. debates that were ongoing yeah. earlier. Yeah. And that law was specifically a response to those right, debates, right. but were kind of long overdue to, to update those laws for, for the internet yeah. age. So something like the terms and conditions on Facebook or Google, like mm -hmm. obviously there's like it's a privacy policy that the firm gives the individual and it's some ways like a contract. Um, but obviously in the behavioral literature, people sort of discover that you know, no one really <laughs> reads the terms and conditions and you yeah, know, no, I, people I just kind of accept, you know, in the face of like small incentives, like I want to get access to Facebook right now, so I'll just mm. accept these conditions and get on there. If the policy isn't there, uh, ready to help us to protect our information. Then, what about cons like just as a consumer, what's their behavior uh, like motivation? Why don't they protect themselves or be more cautious? So I think David has a has a good perspective on this that people just don't maybe just don't understand. Well, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, there's a huge disconnect between what people understand about privacy and and what corporations are doing. And, and what they actually do, right? I mean, so if you have a conversation and you walk up to somebody on the street and you just start talking to them about, uh, you know, about privacy and about companies having you know, your information and keeping track of everything you're doing, they're scared of it, right? They're absolutely afraid of it. If you walk up to a random person on the street and you start talking to them about how they use Facebook and how they use uh, you know, Google or whatever it else, it's very clear they're giving their information away and they're trading it away for goods and services all the time. And I don't think they recognize they don't put two and two together, mm -hmm. right? And that's really um, the setting of Joyce research, um, really kind of zooming into the, the discrepancy between what people say, mm -hmm. how they say they value privacy, mm -hmm. and what they actually do. So the behavior and stated preferences for privacy are, are really far apart. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Joy is really trying to dig into what is that about? Why do we behave in those ways? Is it igno ignorance <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or is it something else? Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about So I, I'm, I think I'm with the, ex the proposed experiment, um, it's really sort of answering or providing one hypothesis out of maybe many that affect this paradox. So like I mentioned before, sometimes it's about information salience. People just don't understand. Um, other times it could be a framing effect and there could be the context, like what kind of data we're talking about. Um, but I think my hypothesis is, is kind of uh, reflects back to the Western theory of privacy being something about control. So people sort of value control over goods and services. Mm -hmm. And if you give people the opportunity to purchase privacy, they might reveal that they value privacy more. Um, but if you sort of give people the opportunity and control to sell their information, they also sort of you know, inflate the value of that because they have control over what they sell. And if you like make them this, both situations identical and you just kind of switch the framing, there might be a little bit of a discrepancy there because, you know, 
you know, selling personal information is really just the flip of purchasing privacy, mm-hmm. and you can make the objective outcomes identical and the framing different. And maybe, you know, maybe people will really care about privacy if you make them purchase privacy goods. Yeah, yeah. And there's some other there's some other um, current experiments like trying to test the privacy paradox. One. Um, one sort of tested for whether or not there's an endowment effect over privacy. So if people sort of have an initial endowment of privacy, are they less willing to give it up because they are so used to this privacy? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they found, yeah, there, there's there's some evidence for that. Um, yeah, and then there's some there's some other stuff with framing as well. From the broader perspective, how do you think the balance between the data privacy and social security? So should we sacrifice the data privacy for social security? Yeah, I mean that's that sounds like the classic argument that we started with in the beginning. It's just like you know, there's the individual rights to protect your information, but there's also you know more information is better when for them from the market in some in some ways. Sort of the questions that I have about how consumers deal with privacy, I, I wonder how much they, uh, you know, they value keeping, um, you know, corporations and whoever else out of their personal business, or do, are they just afraid of of that information being hacked into and taken by, you know, we, we mentioned the dark web, you know, yeah. and having all their information out over there, because one of those seems, you know catastrophic while the other is like well yeah that might be annoying now and again but actually might be beneficial too yeah and i think um i was talking to elaine last week about Mm -hmm. like um the the equifax data breach from Mm -hmm. last september um so i'm i'm a discover card member and last june they rolled out all these like free benefits for or free benefits for card members that you know, we're basically privacy goods. You can sign up for alerts if your social security number was used. You can track your credit score. And then, you know, I, I, I knew I, I knew these services existed, but, like, the first thing I do when I open my Discover homepage is kind of, like, go to my rewards section and, like, sign up for the 5% cashback bonus, which is, you know, somewhere between, like, earning $5 and $30 a month. And I kind of just, like, put, like, the, the security services, like, off to the side, didn't really consider it. Um, and then Equifax happened, and then Discover sent out another notice, <laughs> basically marketing the same products. Mm-hmm. And then, like immediately, I was of course I was going to sign up for everything. Mm-hmm. So I think that that Salience. relates, yeah, salience. And then also maybe the risks are now like what, like David said, the risks are very apparent. Like I didn't know my data could be sort of hacked in that way, but now that I know, I you know I really do value privacy. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's interesting. But at the same time, I think one of the interesting things about the, the United States, I think, is u- unique in this respect, is mm-hmm. that people trust companies like Google yeah. more than they trust the government. <laughs> and so um, people are much more comfortable giving their data to Google than to the govern- government. And so um, people are pretty comfortable um, relying on some of these these well-known companies that, mo- for the most part, treat their treat the personal data sets um, carefully, but then every now and then there's a there's always going to be breach breaches coming up in the future. So, yeah. um, whether the government wants to have a policy that um, defines some practices that companies have to follow, like they do in Europe right now, they're actually implementing the 
general data protection regulation mm -hmm. um, coming up in, in May this year, where it's a pretty kind of heavy-handed set of rules about what to do, how to deal with personal data, and how um, they actually want um, explicit consent for transferring or sharing the data with any other organization. So Europe uh -huh. is kind of charging ahead with a pretty <laughs> yeah. rigid and strict uh, regulation for dealing with personal data. But in the United States, that conversation has not even started. But I think the more we need a couple more breaches <laughs> of the Equifax <laughs> yeah. kind I mean, to I, move ahead. That's interesting. So I, I, having a policy on who you can share it with or how, how much the consumer needs to be aware of, of who they can share it with, I, I, I suppose, I mean, so to me, that's sort of one level of, of interesting, but having standards on how you have to actually handle the data, because it's not clear to me that the punishment a company receives for a breach is large enough for them to really want to take care of my data. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it, it just brings up an interesting concept of, about, like, people trust companies or, or you know, like, how they build the, the relationship of, uh, how how would they like, trust a corporation and, and then say, okay, this company is trustworthy and uh, the government is not or or uh, uh, or the uh, vice versa. But um, uh, I, I also heard about a newspaper. It was about like Google art. They, they, they take people's like a, a facial image and then uh, it's sort of like a game even. Like you can just give out your facial information to Google, and then they will give you some like incentive feedback or uh, art piece uh, matches with your face. <laughs> so that was interesting. But then, do you know what the intent of that program is? Not sure. To build a database with your face attached to your name. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once they have that, they can <laughs> they can see you out there, out and about in the city, and they take a they notice you're there, and then they can follow you around. It's just, it's an outrageous uh, mm. program. Wow. But um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was just going <laughs> to say, because uh, like within United States, there's only one state that denies the... Uh, this program. Yeah, this oh, program. Okay. So if you go on Google, you go on Google Art, um, only if you're in that state, you, you're not be able to access okay. to, to yeah. the Google Art. Um, so that that was like you know certain level like only one state noticed that and then one state <laughs> yeah. they say okay we we banned that um, so that was uh, kind of interesting and then just see yeah but we don't really have a, the, at the federal level we don't really have an agency that would be in charge of kind of dealing with that the federal mm -hmm. communications commission could be that agency and they do have a, a consumer protection bureau inside mm -hmm. the, the 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 agency but they they have not been paying attention to data. Mm. really much at all and in the current political environment they <laughs> the consumer protections are, are are being dismantled as we speak just considering yeah. like how data is like everywhere is like uh, so much related to ourselves in a daily basis um it, it's uh, I, I would think this topic would be ongoing and would be very important either for researchers and for governments policymaker or or a lot of mar uh, marketing people I guess um, so from your perspective or uh, what's the trends like what's the what's gonna be the future or, or what people gonna focus in the next step for three five ten years <laughs> I think one big um, conversation that is starting to happen is in the kind of legal sphere. Mm -hmm. So um, 
data cannot be owned, so there's no property right per se for data. But uh, what are the rights? So how, from, from a legal perspective, how can we define who has rights for what kinds of data? And so it has to be kind of defined almost case by case basis. But that, that is actually, that conversation is starting to uh, happen in, in law. Mm-hmm. And I think from, it seems that law is going to be sort of the starting point for, for, for the regulatory discussion. But I think economics has a lot to offer to that debate and either behavioral or just sort of um, economic efficiency, market, how do markets work and all that, there, there's a lot that applied economists could, could also bring to the table. It's like uh, the propensity to disclose information versus how to value the trade of information. So there are a lot of behavioral experiments now um, kind of seeing what you know incentives get people to disclose very sensitive personal information. But maybe once you know, your information is already out there, kind of like your credit score, like how do you sort of value the trade of it? So there are two different kinds of privacy, if that makes sense. So the disclosure, the disclosure part is the initial, like giving it up, but then like yeah. kind of like the, maybe I can talk about like the, the future of data is like once it's become data, you know, that's another privacy, like there's ownership over that as well. Because right now the only ownership is that initial disclosure, like once, once it's words, out there. In other words, you disclose it and then... Whoever's, whoever you've given it to, they can trade it to whoever they want. Yeah. Yeah. This is close to that policy you're talking about in mm-hmm. Europe where the um, consumer would have to know. That's what we don't have in the United States at all. No. So once it's data in somebody, on somebody's computer file, then um, they basically control and they can do whatever they want I, until yeah. consumers um, en masse kind of um, get, get outraged and, and do something about But then it's really uh, kind of a... <laughs> Our collective, um, collective organization problem. That it's really hard to get consumers to get so so upset that they kind of collectively uh, start a campaign against some some uh, commercial organization. So that the hurdle is just really high. Yeah, because even with Equifax, like we don't really give Equifax consent to right. have our data, but we do disclose our data to like retailers, and I think they collect it from. Well, like we, social media, companies. yeah, yeah. We, we, I mean, we've got to deal with the Equifax if we want to have a credit card. Yeah, right? exactly. Because yeah. the credit card companies deal with Equifax, and you know they get all of our shopping information through that. Yeah. All of our bank information. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a robust market for that information, not just the illegal market that you found on the mm-hmm. dark <laughs> website, where you can for five or ten dollars you can buy anyone's credit information. Yeah, I heard like a dollar um, for a social security number too. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So There's also a legal legal market for shopping data and a lot of, I guess it's mostly shopping data. So there are companies that collect it not just from uh, credit card companies, but, but so that's connected to credit card data, but all the online shopping data is aggregated for each U.S. individual. And now they also connect that with offline shopping data. So the big box stores that where you shop, they also let your information uh, be aggregated into huge databases. So it's a it's a big market. I mean, sort of, it's not a huge market, but but it's uh, everyone's information. So um, oh, so I have people a, are not yeah. aware of that. I have a kind of a behavioral question to append to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a big enough data set, like if everyone sort of releases their information, kind of like Facebook, if their Facebook had a breach, 
would people, would individuals feel? I'm wondering if people feel like safety in numbers when, you know, information is revealed. So like if everyone reveals information and you're just one data point, one in a million, do you think <laughs> we care less about privacy when it's, you know, we know even if there would be a data breach, it would just, you know, the likelihood of someone like really fixating on my information is low with that factor into the valuation? I, I, I would think so. I mean, I, I, I don't know that anybody's done any studies along those lines, but, uh, but if, if you're, you know, the Equifax breach and you're one of 150 million, you probably care a lot less about that, even though it's a huge amount of your information that got out there than if it's like the local target suddenly <laughs> <laughs> released everybody's information who shopped there. And you know, oh, it's like one of like, few thousand people. Right. But often value of data is kind of cumulatively constructed from aggregating or combining, integrating data from mm -hmm. different sources. And so then even if you feel like you're sort of safe in the numbers of, of millions of consumers in that big database, um, but then when your data from that is connected to something else that's available from some other, maybe it's that's from healthcare, or maybe that's mm -hmm. from your um, mobile phone records of where you actually yeah. physically move, then th those integrations can actually build a really comprehensive profile of who and what you are. And then, then even though that one single observation from the um, consumer database might not in itself seem very um, revealing, but when it's connected, um, then it becomes a whole different story. So I guess the takeaway from this episode is please protect your own <laughs> <laughs> password or your data. Be aware. But be aware. Yeah. And when you click the yes, 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 think, <laughs> read the fine print before you click. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Joy, Dr. Leiponen and Dr. David, joining us for today's episode. And thank you, our audience. Please share or contact us. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.